These are my people, and I find them on the street, in shadow through any wild, all wild, my people, my people, a dance of strangers in my blood, the old woman's sari dissolving to wind, bindi and new moon on her forehead. I claim her at my kin and sew the star of her to my breast, the toddler dangling from the stroller, hair a fountain of dandelion seed at the bakery, I claim them too. The Sikh uncle at the airport who apologizes for the pat down, the Muslim man who abandons his car at the traffic light, drops to his knees at the call of the azan, and the Muslim man who sips good whiskey at the start of Maghrib, the lone khala at the park, pairing her kurta with crocs. My people, my people, I can't be lost when I see you. My compass is brown and gold and blood. My compass, a Muslim teenager, snap back and high tops gracing the subway platform. MashaAllah, I claim them all. My country is made in my people's image. If they come for you, they come for me too. In the dead of winter, a flock of aunties step out onto the sand. Their dupatas turn to ocean, a colonies of uncle, grinding their palms and a thousand jasmines bell the air. My people, I follow you like constellations. We hear the glass smashing the street, and the nights opening their dark. Our names, this country's wood for the fire, my people, my people. The long years we've survived, the long years yet to come. I see you map the sky, the light, your lantern, long ahead, and I follow, I follow. That was If They Should Come For Us by Fatima Askar, read by Mohammed Hassan a poet, writer, and journalist, and our guest today on Poetry Snaps. Welcome. Hi, Sarah. Welcome. <laughs> it's a good poem, isn't it? It's so good. It's, it's so, so good. good. It's sort of so, like, it's not wandering, but I feel like I'm, like, walking mm. with her. Mm. Um, why did you choose it? I have just adored this poem. And I adore the collection it comes from, which is called If They Should Come For Us. And Fatima Ashgar is a um, New York-based uh, Pakistani-American poet who's incredible. And there's just so much love in this poem um, for and in a lot of exploration, a lot of wandering. And like you mentioned, it almost feels like she's walking through the streets and she's seeing people that she identifies with and she's building this clan of who she calls my people and, and, and all of the different people that she claims for herself and feels like she identifies with and feels like are going through the same journey as her. And uh, I think she wrote this a couple of years ago, I think around about the time when you know the Trump presidency was starting and there was a lot of really intense uh, policies and fear mongering around um, immigrants and refugees and Muslims in particular. And I think there was a wave of poets that wrote really beautiful poetry in response to that. And all of it kind of what strung through all of it was this idea that um, they're going to celebrate their community. And that was the way that they were going to respond to that. And I think this poem really stands out for me. Mm, mm. I think that's something that poetry especially has such a sort of power to do where it's like it's a form of community building and a form of like bringing together mm. and this poem does that both in its like form and its actual content yeah. as well yeah. yeah yeah i was having a conversation with somebody about that and about the power of poetry spaces and community to bring together people but also to open people up to other experiences and in a way that I think is really missing from a lot of the way that our society works. Mm. Um, and just the idea that what brings us together isn't necessarily where we're from or our worldview or, or anything like that, but a desire to come and listen and be open and to support. Mm. Um, this kind of empathy that is kind of built, uh, that, and you feel like you're a part of that because of that, because you feel like 
this is a space that allows you to share your story and be heard mm. but also asks of you to do the same for other people mm. and as a result you get to experience and really you know walk through the shoes like this poem does of taking you through the journey of of a single person watching the world through their eyes and what i have found so magical about poetry and the poetry community is that it really sets that place up mm. which i think is really beautiful mm. you talk about it a little bit um in one of the chapters of your book um how to be a bad muslim um the chapter's called the last sober driver yeah yeah um and you i i remember like sort of that chapter taking me on a bit of a journey because at first i was like oh this is about binge drinking in new zealand <laughs> and then i was like oh my god it's about the poetry community and but that's almost because they're sort of like i guess we see drinking in new zealand as like a way of community building right like as a as as a way of like coming together um that's sort of how we justify it mm. in a lot of ways um but the poetry community sort of from what i understood with the chapter um provided an alternative space for you to sort of like feel like you could be yourself and get to know people and 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 do that in, in a different way if you're if you're comfortable doing like shout outs um who were some of the people that sort of provided those spaces for you in yeah, Auckland? Absolutely. And um my good friend, incredible poet, Dominic Hoey, was kind of talking to me about that chapter the other day and he was saying something that I hadn't kind of considered was that the the poem kind of charts the birth of the Auckland slam scene. Yeah. Which I hadn't really realized that I was witness to. Uh, and it really coincided with the time that I was getting into poetry yeah. and that a lot of spaces that exist now and a lot of the people that helped shape those spaces kind of came together at that moment in time. Um, and that really began for me with the South Auckland Poets Collective and in particular um, Grace Taylor and Jai McDonald, who had organized the Rising Poets Youth Poetry Movement, mm. which was this... Um, poetry program for young people um, with the aim of kind of coaching and mentoring them and then eventually helping them get on stage and perform their work mm. and I had gotten into poetry before that and uh, really felt a kind of disconnect with the the poetry that I wanted to perform and the poets that I'd met but with also the spaces where a lot of that stuff was taking place mm. that I didn't always feel like I was welcomed in or comfortable in and I was also not finding a lot of young people that were doing poetry mm. um, and so even a lot of the poetry I didn't really felt I'm like okay, I appreciate what's happening but I don't feel like a sense of connection with um, some of these people um, and then yeah I found a flyer for Rising Voices and I showed up to audition to this thing and with this uh, idea in the back of my mind that I probably was going to hang up my boots and just kind of leave poetry behind that, you know, it wasn't um, doing it for me. It wasn't, it didn't feel right. And I'd spoken to somebody, a friend of mine, and I told them, I'm like, oh yeah, maybe I... Maybe I should just go try and like something else. Maybe I should try and like theater or like comedy or something like that because poetry mm. isn't, isn't really happening. Mm. Um, and go then be I, an actor, huh? Go be an actor. Go be an actor. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then I and then I showed up to this place and then all of a sudden I found a room full of young people and uh, this really supportive environment and it was also an environment you know I talk about in the piece about alcohol specifically and, and as somebody that doesn't drink um, feeling like I was I was always disconnected from a lot of these communal social spaces but this was a place that was without alcohol mm. um, and all of a sudden I just felt like something inside me was coming alive and, and really feeling a sense of purpose and place in this in, in this uh, environment. Um, and then that became the beginning of my journey. And then by the end of that year, I had decided, I'm like, this is it. Like, there's no way I'm letting go of this, this really special place. Mm. Um, and then over the years, a lot of people that have really contributed to that, um, Ken Arkite and Kerry Rodzinski, who you've interviewed before, mm. um, who were so integral in helping shape 
the slam scene uh, across the country. Um, the late and great Michelle Dury, mm. who ran the National Poetry Slam, who really kind of took me under her wing and helped me not only get into the slam, um, but when I was lucky enough to win it in 2015, really rallied behind me and supported me in going overseas and taking my poetry overseas and, and making that a real thing that financially I could I was I had the supporting from the community to do mm. um, and that was also the time when I started thinking about taking this taking poetry and writing and performing seriously as something that I that I could really own and, and be proud of and and that it wasn't going to just be a hobby that this is going to be something that I dedicated myself to Mm. And then, you know, I mentioned Dominic Howie before, but he was the person that helped me publish my first book uh, on Dead Bird and, and tour that around and go to festivals. And, and also the example that he sets generally in New Zealand as an arts practitioner and as a writer um, in just being able to kind of make your own spaces, be proud of your own work, share your own work, take it on tour, sell books at your own shows and really build a community um, from the ground up and bring people together. And you go, you go to Dominic's shows and, and there are people that come to his shows that you won't find at other poetry places. And he brings together people that come from like music, sh music communities and, and youth communities and, and, uh, and, um, you know, like fighting communities and, mm. and poetry communities. And he really creates a space that feels safe for them. Mm. And so that, that was kind of, what that taught me as well is, is, is about the idea that, you know, I didn't have to f look for spaces that made me feel comfortable. I could make those spaces. I could have that power to be able to kind of create this space. And then once I did with, with the friends that I formed in Rising Voices, all of a sudden I found that people were coming and filling them. And, and there were other people that were looking for those spaces as well that, that didn't find them elsewhere. Mm. And yeah, so that was, that was something that, that really kind of came alive to me at that point in time that I hadn't considered was a possibility before. Mm. Mm. I think... Um there's something to be said especially for performance poetry and the way that that works because you're really in a physical space together um but you're obviously also a written poet as well you've you've published books um as you mentioned and how is that experience different for you because performance poetry like i'd say my primary interest in poetry came from performance and like light i enjoyed being on the stage and going and hearing people perform their poetry and like being in that space but there's like an art form to written written poetry as mm. well what was that like for you putting your poems on the page well I assume that I don't know I always assume that your poetry exists first in a sort of like spoken realm and then you transform it into a book rather than the other way around but I don't know what was that like for you like publishing those books and having to think about what they how they live on the page mm. um if i'm honest i i don't think i spent that long thinking about it mm. the, i know there's a really intense debate that has always raged about performance versus page poetry mm. and you have people that kind of are really highbrow about page poetry and say that you know like what what, what you do on stage isn't really poetry or like this mm. is kind of like mm. a lower art form or mm. um something like that and I feel like over the last couple of years that that idea has kind of um, been dispelled a little bit by a bunch of just awesome spoken word and performance poets um, publishing their work and and really um, owning that space and uh, not really caring about those limitations. There is a kind of poetry that exists on the page that is uniquely for the page that explores um, space and, uh, and and rhythm and, 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 and a whole bunch of things. And, and to me, the, the, there is no kind of real separation between it. Mm. And there's a lot of poetry that I wrote for uh, performance mm. that when it came to publishing them, I had to rethink how these poems work on the page and mm. what I could uh, experiment with in terms of um, in terms of space and in terms of form and, mm. and, uh, and there's a lot there's a lot of really exciting things that you can do on a page that you can't do on stage and obviously vice versa and 
I think when I came to do my first book, um, I thought about also the kind of poems that I would write for the page that I wasn't uh, writing for a performance. Mm. Um, and so there are obviously aspects of what works well on a stage and what works well on a page. I don't think there should really be too much of a separation between it. Mm. Um, I think when it comes down to craft, I think craft is really important as a writer, as any writer, that you should constantly think about challenging yourself and your own writing. Um, but that, I mean, some of the, the the country's best poets are people that have no problem being on stage or, or on the page. And uh, I think of Tusiata Avia and who is one of our greatest treasures when it comes to poetry, being also one of the best performers of poetry that I've seen. And she's performing the same poems that, that you read on the, on the page. And so there isn't really uh, anybody that could tell Tusiata that what she does on stage is different to what she does on the page. Mm. It's the same poem, mm. but there's a craft in, 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 in performing. Mm. And I think it's really important um, that we kind of like are proud of that tradition, that, mm. that, that performance is part of the craft. Mm. And I, you know, I talk about this uh, a lot with people, but I, as an Arab, as somebody of an Arabic background, I come from a long tradition of poetry and that poetry being an oratory tradition mm. um, that the Arabs, you know, even if you go back to like the Bedouins, um, they would compete against each other in what we would call today poetry slams. Mm. Um, and it would, they would compete in not their ability to perform a poem, but in their craft and knowledge and depth in their language itself, in the Arabic language. And, but all of their poems were written to, to perform. Mm. And so the performance of it was an important aspect. And, you know, when you do theater or, or any kind of performance, you think about voice and you think about body and you think about how that influences your ability to speak. And I think it's something that's really special about poetry is that you can write um, and think about how words and rhythm uh, and voice work once you bring that to the stage. Mm. And I don't think it becomes something that is completely alien to the form of what is on the, on the page, but it is, it is a special relationship that you have with words and, and how, and then learning, learning how that, how you can embody those words and how you can present yourself on stage and bring that energy and emotion through your voice into an experience like performing in front of a crowd of people. Mm. I think one of the things that, it seems really obvious, but um, makes the experience of seeing poetry performed so different to reading poetry is that it's immediate. Like mm. there's a real immediacy about it. You have to pay attention. Mm. And um, once you like what you hear it and then it's gone kind of thing, you know? Um, and I think that's also part of the reason, sorry, swinging back around mm. to, to poetry spaces. I think that's one of the reasons why I, struggle with poetry in spaces that are like bars mm. as well because I'm like guys you're missing it like, so you much know? noise yeah. <laughs> yeah I remember the first um open mic that I went to in a bar and some people showed up and we're talking mm. and I'm like okay like you're entitled to that but also how dare you? Yeah. <laughs> How dare you do that right now? So, yeah, I, I feel like that's part of the reason why I like performance poetry is because mm. there's this real immediacy in it and really like commands your attention. Um, because if you if you if you miss it, it's gone. And there is there is a, like uh, it's it's not always a comfortable thing, but there is like a. Um, how do I explain this? There, there there's kind of like a level of. Uh, uh, toughness that you gain from being like performing in these kind of sometimes disruptive spaces where mm. you um, you kind of get like like battered and bruised a little bit um, but then you kind of have to fight it and then you you really gonna sometimes you have to overpower some of the some of the people that are talking mm. um, and then after that you become a little bit more kind of 
uh, staunch about the way you perform your poetry. I mean, there's been times where I've had to perform it on the side of the road and and to like strangers and passersby, which has been exhausting. And I don't think I'd do that anymore anymore. Um, but it definitely teaches you something about your yeah. You just have to be confident on stage and mm. and really believe in your own words and and it doesn't matter if people are going to be receptive to that or not mm. like it's uh it's definitely like um like a um a co-papa that poetry spaces specifically do try and nurture the idea that you can be there and you're going to be held and supported and it's mm. really important um but there's also been spaces where I've gone to you know when I went to the states and I was performing poems about being muslim and islamophobia and U.S. foreign policy and stuff like there were clearly times that people were just not having it like they were really not interested uh really not happy with what I was doing and uh that was not comfortable um Mm. but I also had to I learned that I had to just like power through Mm. um and then just kind of do it and just be like I'm I'm gonna own this space and I'm not gonna care whether Mm. you agree with this or not Mm. um I believe in what I'm saying Mm. and that is going to be what's gonna help me to push through this performance but mm. it is exhausting it is mm. it's not it's not uh, it's not fun mm, mm. i had an experience not the same um because i wasn't performing as such i was doing like you know like writing poems on the street mm. sort of thing um and a certain local politician um mm. or you know someone who wished to be a local politician mm. um came by and are you gonna uh, name and shame no just because <laughs> he's got a fair bit of money and i don't oh, uh, <laughs> we can talk about it afterwards um but uh yeah he came and he took some photos and put it on social media um about like this is where your taxpayer dollar is really? going yeah and um like he, you couldn't see my face in any of them but you could see my name mm. um and he was like he yeah he like he was like, oh, she's like a, he called me like the G word as well, like in social media, like, uh, like a, a traveler. What an asshole. Yeah. And I was like, what is going on? But then I looked at the comments and so many people agreed with him and were like, just very, like some of it was like, we shouldn't be spending our money on arts, but some of it was also just like, poetry is rubbish, blah, blah, blah. And I'm just like, what the hell? And it just made me realize like, oh yeah, that's right. The spaces that I'm in are like bubbles of protection mm, for me, mm, you know? Yeah. Um, and, but it kind of, possibly to his dismay, it kind of like reinforced it for me. I was mm. like, oh, that's why I'm doing this yeah. because there are still people out there who are like anti-poetry generally, but then also just like anti-voices other than rich white men. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it, it always makes me feel sad when people have those kinds of really intense views about poetry, because all it says to me was that, like the schooling system when you were a kid never allowed you to kind of feel a sense of connection or catharsis or or in literature, Mm. that it was something that kind of stopped you from, and I think people generally get angry at things when they don't understand them or they don't feel like they accept them. And because why would would anybody have that kind of intense feelings towards poetry unless you kind of felt at some point in your life that you're like oh i don't understand this i don't get this yeah and so i'm i'm upset that mm. i that and so this this is stupid so and but like mm. at the core of it is that they just never got a chance to see themselves in it mm. Mm. and i think like not everybody's angry about it but i think that's the vast majority of people that they never really well not i don't want to say a vast majority but a lot of people in new zealand have never really had a connection with poetry that's meaningful mm. like often it is just my classic is Catherine Mansfield at, mm. at high school. Like, you know, they, they read a poem and they analyzed it and they write, wrote about it in yeah. the exam because they had to. And that's like it. That's the only connection that they that's had. That's it. That's it. And, and like no one, no one, I mean, yeah, I had a similar experience with Catherine Mansfield where it was like some of it I kind of like I, I was into. But then at no point in time was there a conversation about like, why is this important? Like, what is mm. what is the purpose behind this? It was it was. And I had like amazing English teachers who are the reason that I'm still writing today. And then I had other English teachers who just kind of like was like, okay, here's the text. You got to read the text and then you got to write about the text and here's what a metaphor is. And, and then that's it. Like, get out of here. And, mm. and if you're not, 
and if you're just reading like poems about winter and and like and like spring and 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 you're not getting any kind of uh coaching to to be like okay here's how you read a poem here's how you see yourself inside mm. of it here's how you respond mm. uh it's very difficult mm. and i think when i had teachers that allowed me to do that um that allowed me to be like okay cool i can write a poem in response to this and i can and and it's not, and like, it doesn't have to look the same way and mm. i can um talk about myself and and i can kind of have poetry that is confronting and surprising and mm. um that was a really good way to access mm. what poetry essentially is which mm. is just a space to be able to talk about ideas and to examine life and the world mm. when did you learn about the Arabic history of poetry because you were telling mm. like you were saying before um when when did you learn about that like w- at high school were you able to make the connection between the poetry that you were reading and be like hey there's arabic poetry too like was yeah. that at that part of your life or was that to was that not really till later you know we had um when i was growing up here we had like sunday school Mm. And it was just like a community space that where all of our moms got together and they like taught us Arabic and stuff. Um and so we got like some of the texts that like kids our age back in Egypt or or in other countries were were studying and there was a lot of poetry in that. And in the Arabic world there's a lot of poetry that is very embedded in like how in the education system um and poems about like nationalism and like history and all sorts of stuff and there's a lot of poets that are is like historical and cultural figures that most people get exposed to at some point um but it isn't until kind of later on that you start understanding um how embedded that history actually is into the country because a lot of the poems that you that you study when you're growing up in Egypt are are kind of like poems about how great the the government is or how great the prime minister is and it's very very like <laughs> propaganda basically poetry yeah. um which i mean historically you know a lot of poets were essentially you know employed by the states wherever they were to to write poems that made everybody feel good good about themselves mm. um and then the other strand of that was was kind of through my uh uh understanding of the history of Islam and the the way and, and the kind of environment that existed in like pre-Islamic the pre-Islamic history of of Arabia and the post-Islamic history of Arabia and how what the culture was like at the time um because I mean when you're a Muslim you you kind of learn to read the Quran and the Quran is written in Arabic and it's written in a specific style of Arabic um and it was uh and even scholars that come to study Islam have to study Arabic quite extensively before they can approach the text um and so there was an understanding that the Arabic language was really important um even in the pre-Islamic history of the region uh and when I started digging into that a little bit later that's when i started discovering that there was like pre-islamic uh poetry and there was like the poetry of the bedouins and and the arabian peninsula and how intensely woven their language was and the craft of the language was into the um into the the culture and the history of the people themselves mm-hmm. and that carried on until uh today and and you have a lot of people you have for example uh one of my favorite poets Mahmoud Darwish who is a and was an incredible Palestinian poet um who wrote extensively about exile and and about being a Palestinian and being a refugee and his poetry is so ingrained into the understanding that arabs have of that conflict on a palestinian culture and so poetry is something that is very much alive in in the middle east and in, in the arabic and the arab world and so it was something that i kind of had had understood and and had known um i don't think it influenced the way that i ended up in poetry and so it was kind of a backwards journey of after i got into poetry of trying to find my way back and realize that there is this tradition that i can lean lean into and and think about um and yeah and really try and and kind of feel like i'm i i am 
in some ways, even if, even though most of my writing is in English, and I could not even begin to write a, a poem in Arabic because that's pretty daunting. Mm. Um, that there is that I feel like I am still a part of that tradition, and that mm. feels really exciting for me. Mm. And I mean, even though you might not write whole poems in Arabic, you definitely do like lean on Arabic in some of your poetry, mm. and like there are times as someone who does for me as someone who doesn't speak or understand any Arabic where I'm like I feel like I'm missing out on part of this poem because there must be like a depth to what you've just said that I'm missing (laughs) and I mean like it's still a really beautiful experience but Mm. I'm just like that's not for me now (laughs) which is fine yeah you know yeah um because it isn't Mm. as well um I wanted to ask um specifically because you were talking about that Palestinian poet I wanted to ask a little bit about um, your journalism and your more sort of, I want to say, I mean, poetry is nonfiction, but I guess like your more um, strictly nonfiction um, life mm. and work um, and how that kind of feeds into your poetry as well. Because your poetry is both extremely personal but also extremely political. Mm. Um, and I've always just imagined that like, the work you do as a journalist is is like feeds into that or I don't know yeah is there's a close relationship between those two parts of you yeah I think there is and I think the same driving force behind poetry is is what brought me into journalism as well and it was his desire to I mean beyond everything else I think a desire to tell stories and I've always, since I was a kid, just really been drawn to the the need to tell stories. And, and it was also growing up in an environment that felt inherently political. Mm. Um, and I mean, if you're an Arab anyway, like politics is kind of part of your identity, part of your culture. Um, you'll find like, you know, Arab uncles arguing about politics. That's like the, that's like the archetype of like the Middle East is just like, like, old men arguing about politics. Um, and you <laughs> Is that go- your goal, to be an old man who talks about politics? I think I probably already am. Like, I'm, I'm very comfortably... Like, there's, there's so many times where I'm just hanging out with friends and then I we just get into, like, intense political debates and at some point I'm like, we're becoming our parents. Like, this is... It's happening. We used to look at our parents and be like, why are you guys arguing about all this, like, meaningless stuff? And then that's, that's you know, apple doesn't fall far from the tree. And so I think there's there's a, something about politics that is very much alive in our culture anyway, mm. um, and uh, that isn't you know that people in New Zealand uh, and a lot of Western cultures very much do not like talking about politics. It's it's, it's kind of perceived as like impolite conversation, mm. um, and when you're an Arab, it's it's kind of, I mean, it's there. It's, it's everywhere. Um, you grow up with like Al Jazeera playing in the background constantly. And so you're mm. kind of constantly aware of things that are happening around you, things that are happening in countries next to you and things that are affecting your life in a lot of ways. And then as my experience also growing up as a Muslim, um, you know, in the war on terror, um, that inherently forces you to think about yourself as a political entity. Mm. Um, And what happened, you know, my experience growing up as a Muslim is that at some point, suddenly I was aware that my identity was political, even though I didn't think about it that way. I didn't consider being a Muslim as as a political identity, but over the last 20 years, that's what it became. Mm. And uh, and then I started seeing the way the media was portraying uh, my faith and myself and, and, and people like me and my community um, in inherently political uh, and radical ways specifically. And there was a problem that I was very much aware of was that I could not see anybody that was Muslim that was telling these stories, that these stories were being told for us uh, over and over again in increasingly hyperbolic and sensationalist ways. Um, and it was affecting the real world that I existed in. It was affecting the way people were looking at me and, and my family and the way that um, politicians were speaking about our community and the, and the way that we felt uh, in our in our 
public spaces and, and, and public transport and going to you know works work offices and, and job interviews and, and then uh, you know airports as well um, that you're kind of constantly aware of what your identity is um, it's like having like a name badge that that everybody can see all the time and that forces you to think about yourself a lot and think about for me as somebody that wanted to tell stories uh, it became okay well how do I respond to what I'm seeing how do I take ownership of um, this narrative and speak for myself and and uh, and try and channel some of that frustration and anger that I felt growing up into something that was um, empowering. And when I found poetry, that was that was exactly what what had had um, allowed me to do. Um, and I found that in journalism as well, because I realized at some point that I really wanted to be able to fix the way the media was portraying Muslims in the Muslim community. And uh, and when I entered into the workplace in a lot of these spaces, I realized that, oh, there's nobody else here that, that comes from a Muslim background. There's nobody else here that is that understands the nuances of what being a Muslim is in New Zealand. And the only way that it was going to change was for Muslims to be able to speak. Um, and that ended up forming a foundation for my work in poetry, uh, but also in journalism. And then over the years, I've started seeing uh, them coming together in, in unexpected ways um, and colliding. And, and uh, when I started writing essays, I found it as a really um, interesting way to be able to meld both of these forms together and also speak uh, about my experience uh, in a non-poetic way, in kind of a much more direct way, but also without the need to um, for it to be journalism, for for it to kind of um, because I when I was also in journalism, I became very aware very quickly about the need to be to separate myself from the stories that I was telling, um, and I found that difficult, and I and I struggled with it a lot because I didn't know where my story ended and where a news report began, especially when I felt connected to some of the things that I was writing about. Um, and then when I moved away from that, when I was able to find spaces outside of that, I, I realized that I could actually tell some of the story or part of the story using my own voice and that I was in a way uh, a witness um, to some of these things and I actually had a story to tell. And that I could also, because again, it wasn't journalism, I could use some of the stuff that I had learned and um, acquired from my journalistic work um, to, to bring that in and to kind of give it a sense of um, uh, depth or authenticity that kind of backed up the story that I was trying to say from my perspective. Mm. Mm. And definitely what you were saying about weaving the poetry into those essays is definitely there as well. Like, I wonder how many people will read your book of essays and not know that you're a poet. Because, like, me knowing you as a poet, I was reading it and I'm like, ha! You're like, cl classic, classic Muhammad. <laughs> classic, classic. <laughs> like, I know that trick. Um, yeah, uh, that's it's, it's really interesting the way that those two things have sort of, like, woven into each into each other for you and also um i noticed uh, a link of what you were saying about the media spaces sort of like creating a creating a representation of muslim folk that you were like a, you you perceived and you were aware of but you were like that's not like who we are mm -hmm. and how that mirrors the idea of like creating spaces like in in your journalistic work, you're also creating a space for yourself, and also in your in your essay writing, you're creating a space for yourself where you can start to make representations that feel more accurate to your experience, and also the experience of the people that you've probably spoken to throughout your journalistic career as well. Where you're like, no, that space isn't isn't right for me. I'm going to create this other space as well, and mm. you've got the you've got the power to do that as well with the mana that you have in in sort of both the journalistic and the poetry 
world. And when it comes to poetry, I'm thinking about it now. I really think performance poetry and slam in particular, one of the cool things about it is that it does teach you how to tell a story. Mm. And it teaches you how to structure a story. Mm. Um, because when you're writing for the stage and you're writing for an audience. And you're writing for three minutes. And you're writing for three <laughs> minutes. It's a long time. Uh, you become very aware of the fact that, you know, you need to be able to carry somebody through a journey. And when you do that well is when people feel like they're like, oh, here we like I, I, I know where we started. And then like, where is this going? Where is this going? And like, oh, here we are. And all of this made sense now. And and it's like a it's like a, a crash course in telling a story. And yeah. then it's it's, a, it's really basic foundational things about tools about how to how to structure a story how to mm. tell a good story mm. um and you know there's there's like a classic almost like cliche in in slam poetry where you have like like the like the funny part and then you have like a twist and, and it comes and you're like and then people are like oh my god this was really trying to tell me a lesson teach yeah. me a lesson this whole time <laughs> and and you like you I bet you probably picked up on that like reading the book as well is that there's, yeah. there's things where it's, where it's like it's like where is this going and then it's like oh there's a twist there's yeah. a twist at the end and that's a hundred percent like a slam poetry th- yeah. tool yeah 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 hundred yeah. percent sort of that like being able to come along for the ride. I actually had a dream the other night, which which I've just remembered, um, which was exactly about about that. I was performing poetry in a theatre and I, I didn't know any of my poems. I was like, I don't remember any of my poems. This is it. And I'm like, all right, guys, I'm just going to freestyle. <laughs> so I started this poem about a butterfly and I can't remember what it was, obviously, because it probably wasn't a poem at all. But like I took, I took the the audience on this like journey through like talking about gender roles and masculinity and stuff like that. And then I came back around and like made this like call about like being stuck in my cocoon and the whole audience was like literally on the edge of of their seat. And then it was like, and I was like, yes, I've cracked it. Oh my God. That sounds like a poem. That sounds like you need to write that poem. Yeah, exactly. Wait for the next slam. (laughs) We we know the twist now though. (laughs) You're giving it away. Damn it. I'll edit it out. Just bleep it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I, it's interesting because, I mean, I when I when I did journalism, um, the only real like storytelling tools because I went straight into journalism after mm-hmm. my degree. The only real storytelling tools that I had had were formal writing tools. Mm-hmm. Like I'd never really done much creative writing apart from at high school. Um, and then I'd just written essay after essay for my BA. <laughs> and so, like, I came into journalism and, again, it was these, like, really quite strict storytelling formats. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, I think even though poetry provides, like, quite clear s- storytelling formats as well, it definitely allowed me to break out of that as well. There was, like, a certain freedom of being, like, oh, like, I can take a risk on this on on this piece of language or like mm. on on the way that I tell this story like I I don't have to I don't have to conform to that um which is something that Dominic taught me as mm. well where it was kind of like play around with it have some fun um and I think that's for me at least where it allowed me to sort of like deal with some of the more personal stuff as well like being able to have fun with it and take risks and like not take it too seriously meant that I was able to talk about more personal things in poetry mm. that I might not have been able to do in other formats. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I mean, like, as you said, like your, your poetry as well as being political is quite personal as well. Um, yeah. Do, do you find that like poetry is still like a fun Thing for you to like be able to like take risks and do do fun stuff <laughs> yeah I really like the fact that as you're saying that there is no right way to write a poem mm. and there are tools that help you write a poem and mm. there are tools that kind of allow you to kind of figure out what you're trying to say and how to structure and all that kind of stuff but at the end of the day um there is no blueprint for writing poems. Mm. And 
as a result, I mean, by extension, there is no blueprint for writing anything. Mm, that's true. Um, and the other thing that I learned from poetry that I was able to then take into some of my other writing mm. is the idea that, you know, like when you're writing an essay in high school, you kind of get taught very structural things about how to write an essay. Mm. You, you start with the premise and then you have like your examples and mm. then you have your conclusion at the end. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. And it needs to be very clear yeah. what it is that you've reached. Yeah, use the key words. Yeah, yeah. exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, and then I, in poetry, it's, there's no conclusion, there's no necessary there's a no good way to end a poem um except when it feels like it's ready to end mm. and often it's the emotion the emotional arc and the emotional narrative that is much more important than the literal narrative of the story mm. um and in the kind of writing that i really gravitate to it is all about emotion it's mm. all about the journey that you're taking somebody on and the journey that you're being taken on as a re- reader and mm it's there's a kind of see now I'm thinking about journalism and I'm thinking about some of the things that I learned from journalism and and Mm. that's you know when you're writing a news story um, there's there's no real romance about how to end a news story like it Mm. ends when it needs to end Mm. and Mm. and sometimes someone else will end up for you I mean yes sometimes an editor will be like shoot shit like chop chop off (laughs) half of the story and end it but there's this uh, there's an economy about writing news stories that is also true in poetry is Mm. is, it's about how do you say um the most with the least amount of words Mm. Mm. um and and then so it's something that's I think is really valuable when it comes to writing is, is kind of reali- like just this realization that people aren't reading poetry or books or anything like that for this very natural story. Like they're reading for emotion. What, mm-hmm. what really connects with people is emotion mm-hmm. more than story, more than mm-hmm. arc, more than, more than um, uh, facts. Um, and if you're able to feel that in your writing as you're writing it, then that will lead you to figure out where to stop. Mm. And one of the things that I love the most about poetry, more than almost anything, is endings, Mm. is the way poems end. Um, Mm. And the more surprising and delightful that end is, Mm. um, the more rewarding it feels to read a poem. and that's it's like a there's no and there's no real way to explain there's there's no there's literally no way of explaining to somebody how you should end a poem Mm. um, because there is no way to end a poem Mm. you just write and then you get to a point and you're like yeah this is it i i wish there was like some kind of secret because ending poems is my is the most difficult thing Mm. for me i find it really really hard and there are so many poems that i've written that i've just been like like I guess this is the end for it like at least for now because mm. I'm just like I'm not completely happy with it but like the end's not coming to me yet so because, like, because because you're waiting you're waiting for a thing you're waiting, waiting you, for you're waiting thing. for something yeah. to happen in your writing and you're like oh, yeah. yes yes <laughs> yeah. yeah 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 do you find it hard to end your poetry like do you is that something that comes quite naturally to you now or do you still find that you park poems and and wait for the wait for a better end i find it a lot harder to start poems than to end poems oh really yeah <laughs> yeah um and it's just like and i and, I, and it, it was always like that for me when i was in um even when i was in high school and i was doing like uh english exams and mm. there would be like the creative writing section mm. and i would go in and i would like rush through all of the other sections and then just mm. like leave as much time as possible for the creative writing section and then i would just stare out the window for like an hour waiting for like the int- for for like the introduction to come to me, mm. and uh, and when I realized when I was writing stories or essays that I would just like spend a lot of time ruminating over where to start this thing, like mm. like where do I want to begin? What is the thing that makes the most sense? Because the last thing I want to do is that I, is that I, I don't want to just literally just write what this thing is about. Mm. Um, it always feels to me like I need to find something, and like I'm 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 somebody that doesn't think in uh linear ways like i mm. think in just like random jagged like metaphors mm-hmm. and all sorts of things like mm-hmm. my, my, i don't know what that is i don't know what the mm-hmm. what, what that mm-hmm. says about my brain um <laughs> 
but uh, I'm like I'm constantly making analogies to things mm. that, mm. that just kind of uh, that and people are like, what are you talking about? Like, what's I feel like, like that makes you a poet. I feel like that makes maybe you that's a poet. it, or maybe poetry is that is is what this is what poetry has done to my brain. Yeah, or maybe that's what you're like. That's why you are a poet because you think that way. Yeah. When people ask me like, are you a poet? I'm like, look, it's not my full time job. But that this is how I think, and I feel like that yeah. like, I see the world as a poet. So, <laughs> and that's something so beautiful about that, in that like, like poetry in its essence is 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 a is a form that asks you to think about everything and how everything connects, mm. and asks you to find connections in the world around you, mm. um, and draw meaning and lessons from all of these things and connect mm. them. And if that isn't how we're supposed to live as as human beings, then like I don't I don't know what is. Mm. And, like, I, and so there is there is something about the poetic mind and like the mind frame that poetry puts you in that encourages you to think about connections between things, connections between people, events, nature, um, and to be able to try and pull threads between all of these things mm. and tie them together. Mm. And I think that's something re- this, that's something really profound about that, and mm. also um, really instinctive mm. uh, about thinking about the world that way. Mm. Um, because to me, nothing is is more boring than thinking in straight lines and thinking mm. about like, okay, this is this like like the environment is over here, and then like like our, our society is over here, and like. Uh, footballs over here and like movies <laughs> are over here. Like for me, like all of these things are connected, and it's yeah. just about finding or the rhythm that that makes all of these things come together. Um, and that was what I love about poetry, and that is why I love about writing is that freedom to be able to do that and to make these mm. connections and, mm. and not have somebody to tell, tell you, like, no, no, I don't think this is. I don't think your metaphor is standing up here. Like this is. <laughs> Yeah, but there's something very um, um, there's a form of resistance in that because like linear thinking and having things in silos is kind of how our society currently works. Mm. You know, like 100%. everything's fragmented, everything is categorized, and everything like must move forward and progress. And so, like to say, actually, and this is why we're in the, the mess that we're in right now. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. So. To say actually no, there's like a connection and like a, a flow and a rhythm between all these things and, and they, they exist together mm-hmm. and that there's almost something sort of like spiritual in that connection yeah. is, is a form of resistance. I always think about this one. I'm going to say that it's planet Earth. I want to say that it's planet Earth. But this clip from, from this nature documentary about this river and, and I can't remember where it was, it was somewhere in the Americas, but the river had dried up mm. and um, the ecologists were trying to figure out how to bring this river back to life. And they realized that there was like this chain of things that were all connected to each other and that the way to be able to kind of fix this ecology was to reintroduce the species of wolves to this valley that hadn't lived there in decades and the wolves had left because all of the stuff, like the river had dried up and all this kind of stuff. And they introduced the, these wolves back into this valley. And the wolves started hunting uh, a specific type of animal. And so the animal that had kind of like overpopulated the area, its numbers dwindled. And then so the grass that it was eating uh, wasn't over being, being overeaten. And then that started coming back. And then the grass started feeding into the, the, the geography of the land. And then eventually the river started coming back to life because mm. of all of these things were connected. And the, they, the wolves brought back, they literally brought back water into this valley that had been dry for decades. Mm. And it was just the most like profound thing and mm. uh, such a lesson about the fact that all of our lives are connected and all everything that we know is connected. Mm. And of course, we're like starting to learn that lesson in really painful ways when we're talking about the climate and we're talking about how oh yeah, every one of us is connected to global warming and every one of us is connected to these ecological disasters that are taking place. And it has everything to do with our lifestyles, with the way that we do industry, with the things that we buy, we choose to buy with our money and with the things that we choose to throw away. And that all of this stuff is, is in this really tightly wound 
um, ball uh, of life that that exists all around us and that we're part of, mm-hmm. and that's as you're saying that this real disconnect that happened with I don't know the industrial revolution with capitalism with the way that our our modern society has formed where we very physically disconnected ourselves from everything around us and the environment and our ecology and everything like that and chose to think about ourselves and our societies in very siloed ways mm. um, and I mean somebody who I think does an incredible job of capturing that in poetry is is Mary Oliver um, mm. is one of my favorite poets um, uh, and her poems are just all about nature and all about finding drawing meanings out of nature and, and observing the world around her and being able to capture all of this nuance mm. um, and that is I mean that's the way that human beings have lived for like most of human history mm. on this understanding that we have this really specific, not only a connection to the, the the environment around us, but we are a moving part of that environment. Mm. And the actions that we take affects everything around us and the, the, the things that happen in the world ends up affecting our lives. Mm. And now we're seeing that. Now we're seeing the fact that like, okay, we have kind of made a mess of the climate. And then now the climate is, is really affecting our lives in really almost existential ways. Mm. Mm. Not almost existential. Well, literally truly. existential yeah, ways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so what you're saying is that poetry is going to solve climate change. A hundred percent. It begins here. <laughs> begins on the stage. Exactly. It begins with making connections via metaphor. <laughs> um, this, this, this is this is exactly what I'm talking about. Is, yeah. it, is that I like I, we're talking about poetry, and then I'm like, here, okay, what about the 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 environment? What about the climate change? And and so this is this is how I think. This is how like my brain. <laughs> It's like, perfect. Yeah. It's perfect. It's it's perfect for a podcast format as well. <laughs> <laughs> it's perfect. And then you bring it back round, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's right. There's, there's a twist in the end. It's like, this, yeah, but this actually was about poetry this whole time. <laughs> um, I'm thinking that it's just about time for one of your poems. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I really want to read this poem that I wrote about the Queen. <laughs> Oh my god! Oh yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's it's. I mean, it's kind of a departure from what we're talking about. But it's also it about matter. the fact that everything's political. And yeah, exactly. Everything's political, and it's a timely poem. Yeah. So I feel like people need to hear it. Um. Yeah. I mean, we're talking about the fact that, like, about politics and 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 kind of uh, the fact that a lot of the my writing, I think, is 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 political, but in the way that I think everything is political. Yeah. Um. It's kind of a cliche to say, but I think it's very true. Mm. Um. And I think our existence and our identities is political. And I think more often than not, we try and shut that out. And that is where I see the problem. And that's what I see, uh, our denial of the fact that everything is political and that everything is connected and, and seeing things in, in, in kind of convenient ways um, is, uh, you know, absolves us of responsibility. Um, and which is kind of like a segue that I wanted to do about this poem that I wrote about the passing um, of the queen. And yeah, I mean, and it was, um, it made me super nervous to, to like put this poem out into the, into the world um, because I didn't know how people were going to react to it. And I still don't know how people are going to, they're going to react to it because people feel very, very personally about the the queen. Mm. Um, uh, but it was this, and I'm not alone in this at all, but it was the idea that as soon as somebody dies, um, suddenly their entire life becomes this very rosy image of um, of what we want to, f- the memory that we want to have about them. And mm. and that's, that's a normal part of life. And it's cool when it's somebody that is like, you know, someone in your family and, and things like mm. that, you know. But when it becomes somebody that is quite a consequential political leader um and somebody that is very much symbolic of a lot of uh historical trauma that a lot of people felt and and very much so i mean like it's it's you know we think about the queen as being you know like a grandmotherly figure and Mm. being somebody that eats marmalade sandwiches and drinks tea and all this kind of stuff but it's just the it's the realities of what her position was and, and what she oversaw in her lifetime, um, which was the ends of the British Empire and which like it was a lot of 
pretty so anyway here's my poem <laughs> no i'm i'm very i'm very ready for this yeah. because i don't know if you can tell but i'm not particularly a huge fan of the monarch either so okay cool cool <laughs> safe uh, space in here i'm not offending you with this poem. absolutely not <laughs> <laughs> um so this is called 15 ways to honor the queen's memory one buy a hat two wear that hat everywhere three Make people bow before the wisdom and wonder of your hat. Four, honeymoon in an exotic place. Five, break into the home of a local family. Six, empty the fridge, uproot the vegetable garden and the grandparents' graves. Seven, if they resist, send in your cousin to teach them British values. Eight, on your way out, Raid their jewelry cabinet and sellotape the diamonds to your hat. Nine, your hat is now the greatest hat, and everyone must agree or else. Ten, hire someone from the house to drive you around the block in a car bought with stolen jewels while you scream out the window, I own you now. Eleven, crush the bones of unearthed relatives into a fine cream, lather it over your face, while you pray for long life. 12. When your daughter falls in love with the driver's son, watch your bloodline murk before your eyes, pull out a pair of wire cutters and hashtag carpe diem. 13. Years later, on a foreign exchange, the driver's grandchildren will pay to visit the house you keep your many hats. 14. They will pose next to their favorite hat, the one that reminds them of the stories they were told about how beautiful their house used to be before the storm, before the droughts and the famine, before history was forced to kneel, before the vultures arrived to stretch their wings and feast. 15. They will watch the sun set over your garden, so serene, so full of promise, and wonder why your local cuisine tastes so much like their mother's cooking.